Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to the fifth episode of The King and I. I'm Ron Waxman, and with me, Dr. Spencer King from Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome, Spencer. Good to be here, Ron. And um, today, I thought that we should discuss about the whole uh, virtual versus in-person meeting. As you probably heard, the AHA just announced this week that uh, they're not going to do the meeting that was supposed to be in Dallas, Texas in person and it's not going to be hybrid, it's going to be completely uh, virtual meeting. I mean, for me personally, the Dallas venue is very interesting because over 20 years ago, I was chasing you uh, for my interview for the fellowship and uh, went from uh, <laughs> through the entire convention center and, and probably as, as was good because I was accepted to the program. but. I wanted to hear uh, your thoughts about um, the meeting, the virtual meeting concept, because uh, we just had the EuroPCR became EPCR virtual, and the TVT meeting was uh, TVT Connect, and TCT will be TCT Connect. And if we go backward to ACC, it was also virtual, and Sky was virtual. I mean, actually, the only meeting in 2020 was a CRT. I just got a picture, it's behind me, of uh, me interviewing Michelle Obama. You can see it here. Uh, just so the last up. real meeting, the last one. Yeah. So, so what do you think about those uh, virtual meetings? I mean, uh, how do you feel about it when, when you compare this to this in-person meeting? Well, I, I have to take my own experience. So at your meeting, which was the last live meeting, uh, I can remember a great many things about it. I was very much engaged. I was visiting with colleagues. I can remember who was there. I can remember having conversations. I've, I've been to several meetings since then that have been virtual. I can remember almost nothing. <laughs> uh, it's probably my uh, an indictment of myself, but it's a very difficult thing. I mean, you know, it sounds good. Uh, distance learning and so forth sounds like, uh, okay, this makes great sense. But uh, I, I personally am uh, uh, very concerned that, uh, you know, we'll lose, uh, we'll lose a lot, you know, the, uh, ho hopefully HA will be a temporary thing. Maybe we go back. I hope, uh, I hope that uh, ACC will not uh, be forced into this uh, when, when that comes around, but maybe, maybe so. Uh, so uh, my, own, my own personal thought is that uh, it's, it's what we have, it's what we'll do. We're, we're getting ready for an epic uh, meeting, the, the Emory meeting, as you know. And uh, that is coming up in August, so there's no question that's gonna be uh, remote. Uh, one thing you can do with the remote meetings, of course, is you can have uh, speakers that maybe, you know, would have a hard time traveling to some of these things. With the exception of the really big meetings, uh, smaller meetings can attract maybe speakers they couldn't otherwise, because the speaker doesn't have to travel there. They can give their talk from a remote location. But from the attendee, so much of meetings are the interaction, the, uh, uh, the exchange of ideas that are outside the actual presentations Presentations, yes, you can see the presentation online. 
you can see it and probably get just as much out of it as, as you're sitting in the audience. It's the rest of the meeting that uh, you miss. And the other part of that is meetings are supported by industry. So what, uh, what uh, is industry's view of the virtual meetings? You know, when they're at the in-person meetings, they feel like they've captured some of the audience, they show you their newest gadget, they talk to you in person, they take you to their exhibit, which costs them a lot of money to build. But uh, they like that, apparently. I mean, they, historically they have. How are they going to transfer that to the virtual uh, uh, marketing, which is what they're doing, uh, to, to the attendees? Th these are all tough uh, problems. Yeah, you know, I, I wonder what was your feeling. I saw actually uh, on the Sky meeting, uh, there was a panel um, thing you were there with Eric Bates and some other giants of the fields, and there was a discussion. So I wonder, I mean, when you were doing that, uh, did you ever feel like how many people you speak to? I mean, are you feeling like you, you're talking to yourself among yourself or you have like a crowd of 5,000 people following you at the same time? Did you have any notion who is there? Because I tried to look. It was also partially through uh, some software, but from time to time you saw a number of participants, but it showed like five to seven. I didn't know if it was related to the people who are the panel discussion. Uh, but what was you feeling when you were talking? Because, you know, in, in a regular in-person meeting, you see the crowd, you know exactly how many, many in the, if it's a main arena or if it's a small room, you see all the faces and you know who is participating. So, so what was your thought as, as, a, as a panelist or a speaker on that meeting? Same thought I have now. I don't know who, who listened to that. Maybe there's some data that on that they can show us who has uh, picked up and had a look at that. Uh, the topic, of course, you know, it's not a late-breaking trial. It's a bunch of old guys talking about the old times and such as that. So, uh, but yes, it's, uh, it is not clear who is watching. I mean, we need some research on that subject. When we do online, what is the, uh, who, who are we getting through to? When we have a meeting and it's a big auditorium and you see the people, they may be on their computer, they may be asleep. We don't know, but we at least see they're there. And in the online, uh, we have technical ways to figure out how many people tuned in, but we need more, more uh, uh, feedback about that to understand who we're really talking to. When you ask a speaker, it occurs to me that when you get a speaker say, okay, I just called a very famous person yesterday. Uh, ask him to give a speech at the epic meeting. I can see in the in the mind's eye, okay, well, who's going to receive this? Am I up there in front of a, a big crowd? A lot of people going to get this? Yeah, it's going to be archived. It's going to be available. It can be seen later, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, yeah, it's it's not uh, the feedback is not good uh, for this for the uh, presenter. Yeah, one thing that I noticed that many people are asked to record their talk. So when they, re when they record a talk, they go into the bunker uh, and they kind of whisper because they don't want to wake up the kids, so they're not going to make a noise. Uh, and it sounds like very weird, like uh, they're talking to themselves and they record it, and then you get this to hear. It, it's a very uh, bizarre feeling. So. So I, what I miss is really the feel of interaction. I mean, we, we're currently doing a fellows course every Saturday, 
uh, and we actually try to do it on Zoom. So at least on Zoom, you get exactly who participants, they can raise their hands. I know if I have 100 people, 300 people and so forth. But uh, again, interaction and feel that this is alive. I mean, this is something that, that, that we are missing. Well, you know, it occurs to me that when somebody, late-breaking trials, really important things get presented, everybody sits there. What happens as soon as it's over? You walk out in the hall, you, you corner somebody, say, what do you think about that? I mean, is that off the wall? Are we going to change practice because of this? Uh, what do we need to do? All these kind of follow-up things that you say, well, the questions come to the speaker, but they don't. They come to colleagues interacting after, after it's over. I think uh, these Zoom things like we're having right now, where we're just talking to each other, uh, maybe are more, are more, I'm not saying that we're that interesting, but I believe, I believe that uh, conversations and having just done two years of uh, running Axel, where you're talking to somebody, you're interviewing them about the study, about the trial, about uh, the implications it has, and you're kind of, a, as you are, a wonderful uh, interrogator and you say well, okay uh yeah but let me ask you the hard question you know what are you going uh that that maybe gets done better uh by in, in uh, by uh, uh telephonic uh, techniques by, by this kind of remote thing because you get a very uh, you, you get things done that you don't you can't get done even with a panel in a major presentation so you do get that yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that the one-on-one -on -one, uh, allow you to interrogate. Uh, you know, you see again the back Michelle Obama. Well, I'll tell you my experience with that. It's very hard because they, when you do those guys, this, this is not late-breaking trial. This is just our kind of keynote speakers. You get like a list of questions that you're allowed to ask. And if you deviate, you get the slap in the wrist. So it, it's, but when you interrogate someone for late-breaking trial, I mean, obviously, you can grill them. And, and I do that a lot when we do CAT conferences. Uh, we take people who publish papers in journals like JEC or Euro European Heart Journal and New England, and then we, we really give the, giving them hard time, like a reviewer, which again, you taught me a lot how to review a paper and get them into the study design, and you ask them all the difficult questions. But let me, let me ask you one other thing. Um, so live cases in, in courses. So again, uh, you were basically in the first Grunze course, you, you, you work with the Andreas, you brought the first, the, the following courses to Emory, which turned over the years to Epic. But uh, so, so you really were running a lot of the initial courses and a lot of emphasis was on live cases. So what is, how do you bring that live cases into this virtual? And do you think that there is a value? Right now, no one is doing a live case via the Zoom. What are your thoughts about the live cases incorporating in those virtual meetings? Well, as opposed to other meetings that have been uh, uh, virtual, we are doing live cases in the EPIC meeting. Uh, we're going to do some from Atlanta, some from North Carolina, some from uh, Texas and so forth. So I think the live case uh, format, we'll see. I th I, we, we made a decision uh, that uh, we would we would go with that and see how well that that uh, plays. Um, I've, I've often thought, okay, maybe the canned cases for pure learning is, is okay. 
but uh, it occurs to me that um, you bring in the idea of the early angioplasty courses where people were there to learn, okay, this is something I don't know how to do. I want to learn how to do it. I want to learn what the problems are. These kind of meetings seem to be very um, popular. It's things you're going to take to your practice. These people that run CTO meetings or how to, uh, you know, how to, how to do a TAVI or so forth. Uh, people are going to do that. They're going to go to that meeting and pay close attention. Those those kind of things demonstrated, I think, are are, are going to be successful, and uh, uh, perhaps they'll be uh, also successful uh, virtually as well, uh, live with with the interaction, not a canned thing. Uh, so those are quite different than than the major meetings that we have, where we have uh, mostly lecture format. One thing about that, uh, you know, it's a, a debated going almost for <clears throat> two decades. Uh, what is the importance of live cases? Um, it's maybe not in two decades, but at least a good decade. And, you know, FDA way into that and the society's way into that. And, you know, there, there is an alternative, which is called case in a box or recorded cases. Uh, this year, the EPCR actually did only recorded cases and obviously you have a room for edit and cut everything but uh irrespective to virtual and in person i mean your thoughts about uh, you know have you changed um your thoughts about the value of uh, live cases versus recorded cases do you have any preference and um, from the perspective of the years do you think that from the learning experience, there is a preference for one versus the other. Well, rather than say which is the best, I, I would sort of add up the uh, advantages of one of the other. For for a live case, uh, you you don't know how it's going to turn out, so it's very honest. I mean, you you see it, and it's not a cherry picked case. It's a something. So that's why people like it. It's, it's the unexpected. I used to tell Andreas Grunzig, this is, this is why people don't come here just to see you perform. Of course they did, but they come to see the uh, same reason they went to stock car races uh, in the South. They go out and watch these cars go round and round. Is that just to watch the cars go? No, they're waiting for the crash. They're waiting for the disaster. It's exciting. I say, I say you say, they're waiting for the, the disaster. How do you get out of trouble? Well, fortunately, we don't have that kind of trouble so much in interventional cardiology now because things have progressed and we have ways to, uh, to handle those problems. Uh, on the other hand, a canned case, case in a box, and I've done a lot of those with the Euro uh, PCR and the European uh, uh, Heart Association meeting. Those things can concentrate on teaching. Uh, think about a live case. <clears throat> the number one, <clears throat> uh, the number one goal of a live case should be to take care of that patient. That should be the focus, as in every case. Uh, in a can case, the patient's already taken care of. You know where, and you can concentrate on the education. So when you get to some decision point, you can stop the. Stop it. 
and you can say, okay, now what would everybody do here? Let's have a discussion about should we use this wire, that wire? Should we put in two steps, one step? You know, you can have all these discussions and you can make your whole presentation aimed at education without worrying about the patient because you've already taken care of the patient. So th those are the, the distinctions. I think there's room for both. Uh, uh, I definitely think the education aspect of the case in the box is there. And I think it probably should be used more. As you know, it uh, requires a lot of work on the operator's part because you got to film a lot of cases. You got to be, you know, you got to do all this uh, up front and uh, that gets in the way of the normal schedule. And, you know, I, I've tried to get people to do this over the years and it's, uh, it's free work. Uh, it's, it's work that uh, is <clears throat> not uh, something that uh, people want to uh, jump right on. But I think the case in the box is valuable. I think live case is probably not going to go away. Uh, and it's probably most applicable to still uh, uh, kind of pr problems people have. And it varies depending on who they operate, who, who's the, who receives this information, who's that in the audience. Same as we go back to the live audience versus the uh, remote audience. Uh, what are they looking for? Are they people who are high volume operators? They want to see the latest uh, touch to this thing. Uh, are they generalists? Are they people not even doing interventional cardiology who kind of want to see what can be done? Uh, do I really want to send my patient for CTO work? I watch several of them and I say, I got this patient with a CTO you know, he's not that sick. He's not hurting that much. Uh, they had a lot of trouble. Maybe, maybe when I've seen that, I, I have, a, I'll, I'll wait a while. So I think that the education is both for operators and for maybe referring physicians as well. Yeah. I would tell you every time we serve, uh, we do a survey for, uh, the attendees, they say we want more live cases. So if I had to put head-to-head -head live cases versus case in the box and put it in a poll, I know who's <laughs> in the live cases. It's true, like, for example, you take CTO. Uh, so I go to Japan. I mean, you used to come to the, those meetings as well. I think it's called CTG. And they're running, like, uh, all day long. It's one CTO case. Uh, so obviously, you need to read a lot of stamina to look at those cases, uh, whether if you put it in a... Uh, case in the box, you can probably truncate this to one hour, but then uh, you get the impression, wow, that's so easy. I can cross and open that CTO in less than 40 minutes, uh, but you're losing basically the truth of the matter that this can take you almost like a six, seven hours and a, a liter of contrast, et cetera, et cetera. And the same for bifurcation and all those things. So I think that uh, no matter what, uh, my impression from over the years is that the more live cases, uh, it, the audience would be uh, appreciate more the meeting. And I agree with you, they don't want to see the simple cases. They want to see how you get overcome a complicated cases. Uh, I don't know how that's gonna be projected on um, virtual. I mean, are we gonna have the same effect because you know, if you recall many times, like when the operator have a shutdown of the vessel, you hear this uh, hum in the audience, wow, or 
And, and when there is a success, everybody is like, give you a show of hands. Uh, so this whole issue, again, of uh, this interaction with the audience, you're losing it, and, you know, it's part of the show. So, uh, again, I think we, we, we're losing a lot by this virtual uh, compared to um, in-face meeting. Um, and, and well, I, if you want my predictions, I, I would say that uh, the virtual is a, a transient thing. Uh, I mean, we're in deep trouble with this epidemic and we're going to be in trouble. It's all kind of ramifications. Uh, is it going to change the whole world in terms of the way we do medical education? And everybody's saying, oh, this is the revolution. This is going to be like the Black Plague that led us out of the Dark Ages into the, uh, into the Renaissance. Uh, I don't, I, I think there will be changes. There'll be a lot of them. But uh, the... People getting together, uh, I, I think it, it will decrease the, the number of, of meetings and everything. But I think there will still be uh, still be conventions, conferences, or you convene. Uh, people will still want to do that. The people who support education want to do that because they want to interact. Uh, I just think that... Uh, you know, a couple of years from now, you know, we'll we'll be say, saying, uh, yeah, you know, we thought live meetings yeah. were going to disappear, but uh, my prediction is uh, they they will for a while, but but they'll be back. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's very hard to predict what's going to happen in the end of February of 2021, but because I'm optimistic, uh, we are still planning to do it in-person meeting. Maybe it's gonna be the first meeting back in person if we were the last one in 2020. And we actually trying to do it with the social distancing, uh, using face masks. It all depends where the pandemic would be in February, no one can tell. I mean, numbers are right now on the rise, but it may be in decline. Uh, we believe that vaccination probably will be around that time available. Um, so, so we'll have to make a decision, obviously, closer to the meeting if this is feasible. And I tell you what, it depends. It depends if industry would be willing to come and be there, because as you mentioned, they are the biggest uh, supporters of those meetings. So if they won't feel that it's time, we would have to do a one round of virtual. Uh, but I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll be able to do it. And, uh, you know, the pandemics, they're going to not last forever and we know that let, let me ask you then you're going to do it you plan to do it uh have you given a lot of thought to how you're going to do it uh and, and i'm i just this morning as we're talking the governor of my state your former state gets up and makes this big announcement that he he wants everyone to wear a mask but he will not mandate that because that's an infringement of your liberties. And, but he's not, he's not a, opposed to mandating seat belts and mandating speed limits and things like that. So the question is, uh, I think doctor, I think we're different. I think in your meeting, you could mandate mask. Now he says, well, you can't enforce it. Of course you can enforce it. The way you enforce things is they're against the law and everybody has has them on and you see somebody without the mask and they feel totally out of place. And they, they will, I can't imagine any of our colleagues, our fellows, 
our industry showing up at your meeting, if we're still wearing masks, then, who are required to do it by not doing it. Like you have to wear your, your badge to get into the room. You got to wear your mask. To get, uh, this, could be, uh, this could be the first fully masked meeting. I challenge you on that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I totally agree with you. Again, I'm not talking about the law here. This is just the regulation of the meeting. It's like when you have a meeting, you have to wear a badge, right? Let's start with yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, you have to be respectful to the other speakers, right? If they tell you you don't take uh, pictures of the screen or record something, you're supposed to do that. And if you don't do that or you don't follow, you ask to adhere to that. Uh, you have to... Uh, a lot of stores that are open right now, if you want to enter to the store without a mask, uh, someone at the, the uh, door will tell you, uh, if you want to be visiting in this store, you have to put a mask on. So, so this is sort of the internal rule. So what we are planning is to have a 100% masks, 100% social distancing. We actually were asked by the venue, this is the Gaylord, so it's a big venue, whether we want to share some of the space with other meetings, because now a lot of meetings were canceled and they want to resume it around that time. And I said, no, no, actually we need the extra space because now we have to keep the social distancing. I cannot put like three people on a table that used to be, it's maybe going to be one per table or two per table. So uh, the goal would be the first social distancing mask meeting uh, why am I hopeful? Uh, I think that people by then will be sick of the Zoom. Uh, they really need the interaction. They want this. So if you assure them some level of safety, the numbers will be in a range not of a thousands per day, but only maybe a hundred per day per state. Um, it, it's likelihood that we would be able to run it. But again, uh, I, I, I would say that uh, only the fools can be profits. Uh, so I would say I have to leave a lot of uh, wishful, optimistic things. Uh, but again, my prediction is that we would be able to do, and we'll try to make it as an attempt, if the industry would be behind us, uh, to have the first social distance slash mask uh, in-person meeting. Important uh, part of leadership is leading by example. And... and uh, this has been a failure uh, of the mask wearing for the country. The president of the United States has caused a lot of this problem. Uh, people, if you and I were talking to each other as close as I am to this screen right here, I would be breathing everything coming out of your mouth and you would be breathing everything coming out of mine. We've not sold this to people. that. In day-to-day -day life, you're breathing everybody else's exhalation. And that's why you're wearing a mask. Because testing in Florida right now, a quarter of the people or more have active virus. The active virus is coming out of their mouth. It's going into yours. I mean, I just think we've undersold the effectiveness of, of a mask to prevent that. And uh, that's been a uh, uh, public health measure that I think uh, everybody kind of missed early on uh, to make this uh, so important. Partly we missed it uh, 
they, they were doing it in China, they were doing it in Japan, they do it everywhere, because they do this ordinarily just to try to not catch colds and flu. Um, and we, we viewed it as something Eastern and Western people shouldn't be held to the same standard. Well, that's what it got us. Good. So you're a big believer in mass. There is no doubt about it. Uh, uh, well, I can assure you that uh, if we do the meeting in person, and I, I think you, you never missed a meeting at CRT, as far as I recall. You may did once, but I, I cannot recall that. Um, this I meeting, don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. So this meeting would be a mask meeting and a social distancing, no matter what's going to be the pandemic situation, and we're going to ask people to respect it. But I think we're going to make it... Uh, less painful than you think, and uh, especially, you know, the meeting at, at February, it's not going to be outdoor, it's going to be indoor. Uh, we're probably going to make a lot of distance also from the podium to the first row, <laughs> just to respect all the things that's coming out of your mouth and not to hit the first row. Uh, so there is a, a lot of, uh, maybe you'll have a plastic uh, barrier there as well. So there's a lot of planning there, uh, but we have at least five months. So it's great, great talking to you about this topic. A lot of speculations. Uh, we covered a lot. And again, that uh, brings us to the completion of our fifth episode of The King and I. Thank you, Professor. Thank you, Ryan.